正在收听 In the Corner by c o m b y The Water Pal 博客。好的。<笑>Your grandfather was a doctor during World War II, who treated Chinese soldiers fighting the invading Japanese. Did he relay any particular stories about these years? Yes,、um, he lived in a time that、um, in the first half of twentieth、uh, century.、Um, I remember grandfather told me that、um, at one time that all these、uh, injured soldiers fighting the invaders, the Japanese, and they came to the clinic for help, but they didn't have enough place to stay. So they actually end up occupying all the spaces in the clinic, you know, in the hallway, in, and take up the whole clinic. And my grandfather would treat them. All these soldiers and all these folks that、uh, free of charge, so he was、um, awarded by the city mayor as、um, you know a selfless, you know, bit benevolent doctor. Now he did more traditional Chinese medicine, correct? Yes,、yeah. yes, completely traditional herb medicine, some acupuncture. Yes. What is your opinion of that? Because obviously you practice Western medicine. I think Eastern Western medicine are sort of the. Two different sides of the same coin, and we need both, and、uh, neither which is complete solution to the problem, and but yet、uh, they are、uh, complementary, synergistic. So, for example, if we have a net,、uh, there's a big hole, and the fish escape. You know, let's say you're fishing, so the first thing to do is to repair the hole, and that's what typically what Western medicine takes to, upon discovery of a problem. And try to fix the problem structurally through surgery and things. Well, Eastern medicine will look at the incident, saying not only we need to repair the hole, but I like to know why the net was weak to begin with. So work on programs to strengthen the net in a long-term plan. So I think to, to achieve best human health, we need both approaches. We need long-term preventive medicine. Uh, understanding how human body functions, how can you nurture and support to build a stronger human body immune system, but at the same time, when we have a disease,、uh, cancer, trauma, injury, we do need、uh, more effective、uh, solutions at the more local level. Do you try to incorporate、uh, Eastern medicine in your practice? Of yes, to some extent, I'm, I'm mainly a Western practitioner. I do cataract surgery, for example, LASIK surgery. All these are surgical procedures for the eye, 
But at the same time, for example, in the cat, right, all my interaction with patients, I ask them about the preventive aspect. Mm. You know, I ask them, do they wear sunglasses? Because ultraviolet light has been shown to have a strong correlation with acceleration of carrot formation. Really? Yes. And uh, green leaf vegetables and carrots, these vitamins, and exercise. Lots of people don't recognize that the aging of the eyes relate to the renal circulation of the eye itself. Mm -hmm. And just like we exercise other parts of the body, we get healthy and the eyes the same. So you exercise, it will help. So this dimension is generally absent in a pure Western practice. You know, you come in, you have carrot, you need a surgery, gone. You know. I don't do that. I sit down with my patient, talk about not only fixing the carrot, but also uh, why they develop carrot and what they can do not only for themselves, but also family members. You know, now they have a family history of the disease. Other family members increase tendency of developing the disease and what they can do. Do most of your patients me. listen to you about the preventive medicine? Yes, uh, they listen to more than what I actually would expect. Bhalonya,说成是不治之症。要使龙哑人讲话,除非铁树开花。孩子们的发生器官都很正常。为什么他们不能讲话呢? During the Cultural Revolution, even some aspects of medical science, in fact, were uh, suspect by Mao. Did your parents, whom were both doctors, have to change the way they treated patients to conform to the cult of Maoism? Yes. First of all, the Maoism is much more than just a political ideology. It was, during the Cultural Revolution, it was a way of life. Mao's teaching permeated through every aspect of human living during that cultural holocaust, the cultural revolution from 1966 to 1976 and time before then after that, even to a large extent still true today. So it does affect medicine. Uh, for example, there are teaching uh, in the medical textbook, there are certain things that Mao likes to see, uh, for example, related to medical practice, help factory workers, peasants, those are Mao's Red Guard and soldiers, they're very loyal to Mao. So those sections are enhanced. And as opposed to, let's say, treating a mental disease affecting an intellectual professor, you know, schizophrenia, something that was suppressed down and was paid less attention to. So, uh, so workplace injuries relate to the worker and parents. These are lawyers, foot soldiers of Mao, were enhanced at the higher status of teaching or importance. So some things improved for some people under Mao. Yes, I think, um, you know, uh, the Red Guards, they have more power to abuse others, that yeah. they can invade factories, they can take over, communist leaders can do anything they want without having to obey any laws. So they were happy. I mean, yes. Yeah. So rulers. It's ironic. Everybody makes this point that communism was supposed to get rid of class and get rid of, you know, hierarchy, and yet it made it almost even worse. Yes, absolutely. For example, one of the most powerful examples of that, if you compare today's China, which is still a communist country, to today's America, for example, the amount of polarization of wealth is much more drastic 
in the presumably socialistic communist country than in the West, in the capitalist country. For example, in China, that the few people get together, go to five-star hotel, have expensive dinner, 10-course dinner, will consume an average teacher's salary, six-month salary. In one night? In one night. Mm. Uh, you know, let's say a teacher gets paid, let's say, $30,000, a year. You're saying to go out, have a dinner with four people, consume $20,000. I mean, in the United States, we don't have the expensive dinner. So the point is that, paradoxically, there were more polarization in a presumably more wealth, evenly distributed society, such as a communist socialistic country, than in the West. And uh, one might ask the question, why the result is exactly opposite of the teaching? And I think the answer to that question is the, f the fundamental flaw in the communist teaching. That is, it assumes that people are intrinsically good, they are willing to selflessly, others take their wealth and allow it to be distributed, assume the leader is good-intentioned without self-motivation. All these are completely not true for human beings. Basic human nature is a selfish instinct-based. So because of that total lack of understanding human nature, the communism developed the whole systems that trying to wipe out poverty and more even distribution wealth, which they all end up achieving exactly opposite. And not just China, in Russia too. They're billionaire Russians today and there's still lots of poor Russians. Mm -hmm. So I think communism, despite its intention perhaps good, you know, distribute wealth and people can all live well, but it's a miserable failure because it failed to recognize the fundamental nature of human being, which is we are all selfish to begin with and um, you cannot leave to what you call the device of each human being that yes. behave themselves. So in that, that, that's not going to result you in... You can't give any human being absolute power. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Corruption is in, embedded in the, in the gene of human beings. Now back to medical science, or just science and facts in conflict with the Communist Party in China. Your parents, I know your mother, suffered firsthand uh, trying to save science. Mm -hmm. And... Again, usually the stereotype is that politically on the left, they, they tend to be Darwinistic or materialistic pro-science. But it seems like in every country where uh, Marxism takes over, it ends up, I know at least with uh, Stalin had very strange ideas about science. Uh, Mao, of course, with his views on farming, agriculture, and different things. First of all, talk about what happened to your mother. And then how do you think this happened where it would become more anti-science than the supposed superstitious religious West? Yes, it's an interesting question. I'll talk briefly about what happened to my mother, that she was trying to defend her classroom, her laboratory, in the height of a cultural revolution, I think it was 1969 or 1970, in the middle of the cultural revolution. The Red Guards invaded her universities and took over and started beating up all the teachers. And many of them escaped, but my mom chose to stay and try to protect the laboratory her laboratory, and which has the research results of her, but lots of other professors. But she was badly beaten, only almost died, paralyzed on bed for like two years. So it was one of the many, many atrocities that the Red Guards committed during those um, uh, cultural revolution, unspeakable human cruelty. Now, in terms of your question, it's very interesting. Why paradoxically is it based on Marx, Engels' materialism theory that based on hard science observation, end up um, 
at least during Cultural Revolution, the Communists ruling most of the time anti-science. And the answer to that is that the Communism, the leaders are not really anti-science per se. They are anti-knowledge of any kind. That knowledge is that not a part of the Communist teaching itself. Because the entire premise of Communist ruling is you listen to what I tell you to do. So the best way to dictate for any dictator is to keep people ignorant. The best way to keep people ignorant is to destroy the education process of what they call the mass of everybody. So it's not their anti-science per se, they're anti any information, any observation that would challenge the totalitarian dictatorship teaching of the Communist Party. Mm. So as a result, because knowledge and the could challenge their ruling dictatorship, so they don't like knowledge. Could that happen here? Mm, interesting question. Every society has good and bad, and uh, America has very strong undercurrent right now, change towards socialism. And uh, first of all, you would expect it go that way based on human nature, because any government which will give its people more entitlements, more things, human nature such that people will vote for that. And uh, that's why, you know, America has had a record year last year of the number of people who were on food stamps. That's like more than 15% of the U.S. population. And any president who would you increase that will get voted. You know? Sure. Yeah. So it's a, a taking advantage of uh, human, you know, need to always, um, you know, enrich oneself. So in that sense, the country is going towards this... Um, dangerous direction socialism. Socialism is dangerous because, first of all, that in theory it was wrong, because you cannot, based on each human's own, leave it to his or her own vice. You, you have to have a system that encourages hard work and productivity. People just simply not going to work hard on themselves. They're going to work hard only there's a clear benefit. So socialism, in theory, should not work. And in reality, it has not worked. Also, any country that strictly adhered socialistic, uh, communistic doctrine have remained poor, such as North Korea today. Mm. But it was countries like China who, which deviated from the classical socialism teaching and emphasizing more capitalism, which has improved the economy. Your father hit a book of poetry by Levi, who was a Tang Dynasty poet. Can you share one of the poems he loved, and can you explain why he would have to hide a book of poetry? First of all, you've got to hide any books which are not of communist teaching during Cultural Revolution. One room apartment of the whole family, of where four of us live, my parents, me, and my younger brother, on about 150 square feet space, and no kitchen and no bathroom and um, you know it's it's a it's communal living with share with lots of other families that well, there are only two kinds of books in our house one is the my parents medical book those medical books are pretty much geared towards medical services that communist government allowed communist medical books and second is pure communist books the quotation from Mao Zedong and the little red book and all that 
So in those days, it was considered to be uh, offensive, counter-revolutionary, worth a punishment if you keep any other books. My father and I kept the one Tang Dynasty poetry book behind the shelf, behind those red uh, books. And then when I was young, my father used it to teach me. He said, you know, we grew up in a country with ancient history. And as a Chinese, you cannot not learn about our cultural heritage. And the Tang poetry, that book, has also the drawings and has particular poet, which I like the most, is Li Bai. As you mentioned, he lived about, I think it was 800, 700 AD or some, something. One of the poems I still remember to this day is called uh, Inviting the Moon to Drink. Can you yeah. do it in Chinese and, yeah. and then in English? Oh, okay. I, was, I do it in Chinese first. Hua jian yi hu jiu, du zhou wu xiang qing, ju bei yao ming yue, dui yin chen san ren, yue ji bu jie yin, yin tu sui wo shen, zhan ban yue jiang yin, xing le xu ji cun, wo ge yue pai huai, wo wu, so I, I probably that's as far I can remember right that's, now. But yeah. in, in English, it would be among the flowers, there's a bottle of wine. I'm drinking by myself with no companion. Oh, I can invite the moon. The moon, myself, and my shadow, we three can drink together. Well, the moon doesn't really drink. My shadow follows me in vain. But you know what? To make the best of it, we need to take advantage of the moment. When I sing, the moon hangs around, does not want to leave. When I dance, my shadow breaks into little wrinklets. So the Li Bai's poem is reflect not just the mental status and mentality of me and my father, but many, many Chinese during the Cultural Revolution. That is the sense of loneliness, the sense of not being allowed to enjoy life as it should be. Li Bai tried to drink by himself, inviting the moon and shadow to join him. Uh, while it is very romantic, it's very creative, imaginative, but yet it reflects the sense of loneliness. One does not have another friend to drink, you know, one cannot drink by himself. So this is very typical. This was very typical during the Cultural Revolution, where whatever enjoyment one might have, one has to hide it in a secret in your own house and enjoy with your own family. But any enjoyment, if you take on the street and the public, it will be frequently criticized by the communist government and one can get oneself arrested. So I think that's the meaning of the Bai's poem that one my father and I enjoy so much because it was little enjoyment that we could do it behind closed doors in our house. But mainly is the sadness of such a situation where majority of human enjoyment was not allowed. See, I can't imagine. I mean, because obviously there's plenty of people during that time, but you have to keep your thoughts absolutely to yourself. Because even if you mention to your child, they could turn you in. Yes, I mean, the 50 years anniversary of Cultural Revolution uh, some weeks ago, it was to carry the story of a 62-year-old gentleman when he was 12. He was little record, junior record, and he came home and he heard his mother criticize the dictator, Mao Zedong. She said something along the line that Cultural Revolution is crazy, destroyed the tradition or something. A little 12-year-old young man himself turned his own mother in. Not only that, he actually wrote a letter to the communist leader at the time to kill his own mother, wow. and they did. Uh, 
So uh, this uh, anniversary, 50 years anniversary Cultural Revolution showed the picture of this gentleman who is now 62 holding a little photo, black and white, of his mother just before her death. And he visiting her grave even today, 50 years later. And that he so much regretted and, uh, what he has done. And the, but the Cultural Revolution has caused such a derangement of mm -hmm. human character and uh, emotion and the judgment. When you were a child, you entertained your family by putting on plays about the mythical character, the Monkey King. Can you tell folks who are not familiar with Sun Wukong, his Chinese name, one of his stories and why you liked the journey to the West? Yeah. There was limited uh, entertainment. I, I never had a TV in, in my childhood. There was no toy. There's no TV show. So all the kids, we have to entertain ourselves. Well, one way I found to entertain is I turned my parents' bed into a stage. And the, the net they hung over the bedposts become the curtain. I uh, tied a string in front of the bed and put a bed sheet over the string. Then I hide behind the string, holding up a little puppy in my hands with a clay head puppy and with clothes, you know, little uh, figurines. And all the kids in front of the bed will sit in the little stools. 30, 40 of them will be looking at this show, the puppet show. 30 or 40 people? Yes, all kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all crowded. Yeah, they could watch that little show. And I turned off the light, so I shine the light, so it's very mysterious. And the, the part I play the most is the story of the Monkey King. It's a character of boldness, adventuresome, and uh, always believe in uh, persistence will uh, overcome difficulties. And uh, so the kids will watch, and um, sometimes my mom came home and uh, see the whole room was dark and she would just stay there wait patient until the show's finished the room light turned on my little figureheads on the puppet will take their bows you know and the mosquito net will close the curtain closed mm -hmm. the show's finished and uh, i think i longed to be someone like monkey king or monkey king inspired me was again similar to lee bai's poem lee bai's poem is reflect mentality of the people were not happy with the loneliness they were subjected to and not being able to enjoy m most part of their life itself during Cultural Revolution. But Monkey King also is reflect another wishful thinking of people, including myself, that is, we've been so repressed, suppressed by the regime and um, no freedom, and Monkey King inspired us that to persist, to fight, to not obey authorities and uh, being bold, mm -hmm. and one can change the situation. Because Sun Wukong was always making the gods angry. Yes, yeah. yes. It makes the dictator, the leaders angry. Mm -hmm. So it is something that people were not allowed to do during Cultural Revolution. So most of people, including myself, trying to vent our frustration or trying to almost doing something that have some degree of freedom by acting out our dreams, our desires through the little monkey king. During the 1960s, a writer by the name of Wuhan wrote a play under his pen name uh, Liu Manchur, mm -hmm. right? about a Ming Dynasty emperor imprisoning one of his ministers for criticizing him. Hairei, dismissed from office, became popular and was even praised by Chairman Mao because Mao thought this was a criticism of the old order, the, the old emperors. That is until Mao realized the play 
and a page taken from Hamlet was probably a veiled depiction of his own role, he being the kind of guy who imprisoned and executed millions, who dared to speak out about his own sins, his own injustices. And thus Wuhan was himself imprisoned and later died in prison. You were friends with Wuhan's son, mm-hmm. which I, I couldn't believe it when I was reading your book. Mm-hmm. I, about, I about dropped the book because mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. that's very legendary. Yeah. Tian Ma Wu was his mm-hmm. son. And the two yes. of you wrote songs and stories that were critical of what was going on during those years. Yes. Can you tell us about some of those works and the story yeah. behind that? Yes. I got to know Tian Ma when I was about 14. He was 16. He was two years senior or so. And a uh, very creative young man that could not find a job, and he already being declared to be the counter-revolutionary's son. His father being a famous playwright and was executed, and he was very, very bitter. But he still uh, was very creative, so we met uh, at a similar point in our lives. We both faced deportation if we could not find a job, but we both have some talent, he in writing and I in music. So we decided we're going to do something together, so I taught myself music composition, and he wrote many poems, and even one little opera, and uh, I composed music for them. And most of the songs that Tema wrote were, you know, really similar to The Monkey King, and Li is asking for freedom to be free, to be more venturesome, to not to be repressed so much by the dictator. And... Uh, we submit all of those songs, and we never got published. And thinking back, we're very, very, very lucky because I think, I bet that our submissions were overlooked, ignored. Because if our submission, those counter-revolutionary songs were examined, we could outgive ourselves, just like the fate that Tiamat's father suffered and got killed. And uh, so one of the songs that he wrote was called Prisoner's Song. And I still remember to this day, the words goes like this, um, at the foot of the mountain is my hometown. There's no sunlight, no water. Every day, people walk on the street listlessly with no joy, no smile. We are prisoners. But let's break through this. Let's break through the chains that tie us down to go towards freedom. Ah, yes, we are prisoners. We don't have freedom. We are prisoners in this little town at the foot of a mountain. Putonghua,普通话。啊,呃,這首歌叫求歌,prisoner's,三腳下是我的家鄉,那沒有陽光,也沒有水,每天人們在街上走著,沒有笑容,也不知他們去何方。讓我們打開這個枷鎖,讓
re mi fa re mi and the uh, the song continues but what's remarkable now i think about it is a 14 15 year old will compose a song with such a sense of melancholy and longing and uh, this music itself it's it's sad and it just as um, it's, it's a sunset the world is kind of coming to an end and um, not very much hope but it's remarkable that a 14 year old will compose music obviously I compose for his song but to have the depth of feeling to acquire uh, melancholiness the characteristics that people tend to acquire in their much older ages right. so this is a not a isolated example this is many of the youngsters during cultural revolution you you couldn't possibly have a childhood there yes. in those circumstances yes and we were all living in that gloomy gray blue repressed society with no future Faith in science is one of your passion areas that you often talk about. Uh, in the instance of stem cell research, many feel it's no big deal or it's just practical to use fetal tissue of babies that have been aborted anyway or to create embryos in the laboratory and then use them for what they need and then destroy them, especially if all this could ease the suffering of the living. What is your take on this as someone who yes. uses science from stem cell yes. research? I, I do believe it is a great question and speak to the fact that decisions in human lives are never black and white. It is always is a in a state of equilibrium of balance with a balancing consideration of uh, all issues on all sides. And incidentally, one of the things I talk about in my biography from Darkness Side Tim is I try to take the best from the East and take the best from the West and combine them and try to make my life and life of people around me better. And one of the things in East is East is much more willing to tolerate the shades of gray. The central dogma, the central concept of Eastern philosophy is the sense of balance. Zhong Yong Zidao. Don't go to the extreme, left or don't go to the extreme, right. In fact, the very symbol of yin and yang is a balance, a circular complement, and uh, you know, don't go either extreme. So in this case, I believe that we cannot go extreme. If you go extreme, become a mad scientist. There are unforeseen consequences of human uh, scientific development that could actually be destructive. Science is a wonderful tool, but it only yield positive effect if we use it properly. Atomic energy is a wonderful tool. You can use for nuclear reactors, you can use for energy sources, but when it's not used improperly, it's not to be atomic bomb. So you cannot just say that we have the technology which is used any way you want and then the whole world is in danger because everybody has atomic bomb. But there needs to be some sense of balance, some kinds of control to critical aspect of human technology development. And uh, one might say, well, do we really have a chance to control or regulate or, you know, uh, that they keep human in a insanity rather than go become insane mad professor? Uh, development destructive technologies. My answer is you don't have to look far b 
beyond, for example, the control of nuclear energy in the world. That the, with the two atomic bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 shows that the, the human society was ushered into a very dangerous nuclear age. And uh, there was a fear that maybe that if a major country all acquire a nuclear weapon, the whole earth can be annihilated and human race will be gone. But 60 years has passed. There's no major nuclear warfare. Shows that there's a hope of human that conscientiously control the technology, conscientiously uh, constrain our behavior for the betterment of the whole human race. So I think it's hopeful. Similarly, science, I look at that direction. It's a balance. That means we need to maximize what technology can do because research and science and technology improves our quality of life. We, with iPhone, iPad, we no longer live the way we used to. But at the same time, we need to recognize that science and technology should be developed with a clear conscience, with certain understanding that we just cannot go unregulated and go into crazy area where it can be end up to be destructive. So my viewpoint is that we need to develop science technology and it can work together with good moral ethical principles and faith principles in my case as a Christian. Science and faith are friends, not foes. Now, what I'm observing today in the society though is a very interesting phenomenon, for lack of a better term, I call it polarization. The faith camp almost refused to study science, to study what's going on with themselves and all these things. And uh, because you need to study, you need to understand what you're talking about before you can speak about the subject. Without knowledge, one is not in a powerful position to speak about anything. But the faith camp said, we're going to stick with the Bible. We're not going to understand anything what's going on with science and technology. It's dangerous. Therefore, we're not going to even understand what's going on. I think that's wrong. On the opposite side, the mass scientists don't want to recognize any importance of faith and need to develop science without any moral unconscience. There is a reason why such a polarization exists in human society, in fact, in all societies regarding all major issues, there are polarization. Because at the end, human being has this innate desire to control others. Territorial sense, and um, not necessarily for the merit of issue, just for the sake of controlling or being more powerful. That's a human weakness. We have many, many weaknesses as human beings. That's one of them. We want to polarize our position so that we safeguard our argument, not for the merit of issue, but for the sense of control. And uh, the other human weakness universally is we tend to take things for granted when we do have something, only realize something is precious when we no longer have, have it. So in this case, I see the society not going forward if we remain polarized. But on the other hand, I truly believe human society can move forward if we can depolarize it. You know, was teach the faith camp, the pastors, the you know, divinity school, school students, and all folks that about science, what's going on with stem cell and fetal tissue, is there room to develop science mm -hmm. without compromising moral ethical principles? At the same time, teach the scientists about faith, you know, about certain things, realizing that while you're studying science, you need to understand that it's a duality of life, not just the scientific, but also the spiritual aspect. It's almost like objective, subjective, I have the word, both need to exist. One can be better scientists, better mathematicians, engineers, if one, on top of the, the scientific skill, also have faith. It's one plus one more than two, not just equal to two. So I think overall, my life's mission, I look at it, is I'm a depolarizer. I'm someone who stands right in the middle. One arm extends to the faith camp, the other arm extends to the science camp, and hopefully bring these two camps together.
to show that it is the working together, it's the synergy working together of these two camps that can advance human society. How's that gone? I mean, have you brought people from both sides together, yes. do you feel? Yes, yes, yes. I speak regularly this coming Sunday. I'm speaking at another church, mm-hmm. and I keep on doing that mm-hmm. a few times a month. What about on the, the secular science yes. side? Yes, I spoke. And they listen to you? Uh, yes, right. and the way I did it is, uh, for example, one of the popular lectures I give in those universities, secular universities, is how to prepare for MCAT, medical admission test, for those pre-med students. So obviously they are not interested in faith at all. It's the talk, invited talk about how to prepare for medical school. I have other lectures similar to secular world about the pure medical advance of ophthalmology, cataract surgery, LASIK surgery. But normally what I do, I consider this part of my mission for the science and faith. So I start with science. I have credibility in the minds of these students. Then I gradually lead halfway through the lecture, I can start talking about faith. And uh, they do listen to me because I, uh, in their mind, I have credibility that I know what I'm talking about regarding science. And I gradually lead them to how I uh, begin to expose myself and believe in faith. Now, with your own science, I know you, you build the, the membranes mm-hmm. out of stem cells, but they are from the placenta yes. of babies after they are born. Mm-hmm. And I know that's one thing, uh, you have a program, mm-hmm. if, if a, a, a woman who's pregnant wants to donate her placenta, they mm-hmm. can just get a hold of you and, yes. I guess, send an animation jar or something? Or? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, it's an effort actually was not insignificant. It took me 20 years. I, pers- I persisted, I believe, I, we can find how uh, young people, fetus heal, fetal research, uh, hopefully without touching the baby. And after 20 years in being in the work, unfortunately, I did not give up. You know, Bible, James 1, 4 says, persistence, you know, uh, it will, will complete you. So I did not give up, and uh, we bump into uh, the amniotic membrane part of placenta, which we started experiment. I published the first paper in the scientific literature demonstrating that the coverage of the eye with amniotic membrane can actually re-invoke a fetal wound healing of the adult eyeball reducing scar, improving sight. So that's a great piece of tissue to use amniotic membrane of the placenta because after delivery of each baby, the placenta is discarded. This amniotic membrane contact lens, we have got the US patent, the products in use now, shows that opportunities do exist that will benefit science without compromising moral ethical principles. But the point is that not necessarily the solutions is easily can be found. Mm-hmm. The fact that we cannot find does not mean it's not there. The difference between us, mortal human beings, and God, immortals, is that we only know what has happened to us. God knows what will happen to us. So we have to have faith in Him that if it's important to our lives, and if we persist at the right time, not our timetable, but God's timetable, he will reveal himself to us. And in this case, we didn't invent the amniotic membrane placenta. It was God's original invention. We just had the privilege of being able to discover that and use it. Folks read your book, they'll find out your story and everything that you've endured, and it's quite a bit, and I don't want to repeat it. But in brief, you know, you survived the Cultural Revolution, uh, you were able to come to America, and it was it's a miracle that you got here, considering mm-hmm. how few people were able to come and right. all that. That's covered extensively. So my question is, even though America is generally more free, a whole lot more free, 
there are forces in our culture that kind of act like red guards sometimes, and they try to censor, they try to destroy people who disagree with them. And you've taken very public stances on, of course, in this podcast, you mentioned socialism, and that group has no sense of humor. Uh, They don't like to be criticized. And then, of course, of abortion and these kinds of things. Are you prepared that they may eventually come after you? Yes, I'm prepared. I believe anything which is worth doing, it's important. You have to be prepared for the negative consequences. Uh, you have to be prepared for sacrifice. I mean, it's against the Eastern philosophy that I was brought up with, that everything has a balance. You will never find a deed that worth pursuing without its side effect. For example, I, long time ago, I wanted to pray with my patients, you know, before eye surgery. It's such an important journey of their lives. And they are nervous, you know, somebody's going to cut open their eyes. But when I was con- contemplating praying with my patients, the many friends uh, advised me not to. They say, I mean, you know, they didn't come to you for preaching Christian faith. They didn't come to you for your faith. They come for your medical skill. And uh, if you start praying, then many of your patients will be gone. They will not want to return. So I fought against it. So what should I do? So finally I decided, I do believe that God has brought me this far to survive cultural revolution, come to America for freedom opportunity, and give, bless me with such a wonderful life. I want to stand with God and knowing the downside, the sacrifice I may have to make, and maybe my, yes, indeed, many patients will not come back to me. So I start praying, initially, with somewhat a sense of trepidation, you know, they'll be afraid. And, um, but what I found that in the past, you know, what, nearly 20 years I've been praying with my, all my surgery patients, that what I found that I may have lost some patients, I don't know, but most of the patients are very appreciative. I specifically made a point of asking non-Christians after the surgery, I said, how did you feel when I prayed with you? And uh, I thought someone would be offended and would say, you know, Dr. Wang, I didn't really care for that. But vast majority of patients told me that while we don't necessarily believe what you believe, we are whatever, atheists or different faith, but we do appreciate the fact you slow down as a doctor, you focus on my eyes, and uh, you have a moment of quietness and uh, focus with me, focus on my eyes and not get distracted. You're willing to admit uh, that we are limited as human beings. We need to have more powerful beings to help us, important journey in our lives. And uh, so I just appreciate that effort. So I realized at the end, it's the humanity that transcends through the praying. The fact that, that I was willing to spend extra time to slow down with my patients and for their one of the most important uh, operations in their lives, the eye surgery. There is the humanity that transcends through and across the boundary of faith and religion that really affected positively my patients. doctors, especially when they do as much good as you do, save lives or they give eyesight back to people that were blind on all this, a lot tend to suffer from what they call the God complex, where they become arrogant maybe, or they, they think that they really are something, you know. And of course, daily you help people and you change people's lives and maybe save people's lives in a way. How do you keep grounded 
and humble and, you know, not be spoiled by your own success, so to speak. Is this something you've struggled with? Yes, somewhat. I, I've seen lots of uh, medical colleagues, especially surgeons in many ways, that has the God complex. And um, it's not as big a problem for me, I think, for several reasons. One is I came from a situation when at age 14 I was thrown to the bottom of society, losing all hope for any further education and future during the Cultural Holocaust in China. So I have actually very low expectation of what I will get out of life mm. because I had nothing then. That difference that I'm always happy, grateful, and feel like I really don't deserve it. So I think that helps me not become big-headed and think I, mm-hmm. you know, am going to have a God complex, a surgeon, and I know everything. So the first point is where I came from. Second, the Christian faith I have learned in this country that I've learned that, you know, Jesus Christ has done so much more for human beings than any of our human beings have done in our lives, no matter how much science, technology I know. At the end of the day, what we have done as human beings compared with God has done for all of us, it's minuscule, it's insignificant. So there's nothing to be boastful about. And the magnitude of uh, whatever we have achieved compared with what He has done is minuscule. So in comparison, I don't feel that I have anything to be boastful about. You know the story of Abraham and Isaac, mm-hmm. right? So Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children mm-hmm. for the longest time, yeah. and eventually they finally got a son. Yeah. But then not long into that, then God asked Abraham to sacrifice, sacrifice Isaac. Yeah. Have you ever thought that you know God has brought you this far, mm-hmm. that he may one day say, okay, Ming it's time for you to do something else, I, to give I, up everything you've built here? Yes. In fact, I, I actually see a little change already in me that I believe that's God's intention that I, the first uh, 20 years or so in my life in America, I was focused very on myself. I was trying to study, I was trying to make a living, have a career. In the process, I was able to help many patients, but yet the scope of focus is very limited. In the last 10 years or so, I have been coming to in contact with people from different immigrants, different cultures, diversity, and kind in contact with lots of American societal issues the importance of uh, providing adequate health care for the poor, try to do it without bankrupting our country on big, bigger government or high taxes, uh, try to still preserve our freedom in America. And uh, so how can we find financial resources to care for the poor? We form a foundation to try to address that. And uh, the fact that the different factors, different cultures, ethnicities of faith in this country are fighting immigrants and people, old and new Americans are fighting. So I see those societal issues, I become more concerned and want to do my part. I founded the Tennessee Chinese Chamber of Commerce, co-founded Tennessee Immigrant Minority Business Group, and trying to do what I can outside medicine to contribute to those American societal issues to help make America a better place to live. So I think God is slowly walking through me to let me see that perhaps my purpose in life, His calling to me is more than just medicine is go beyond medicine to be involved in more of a societal issues to help America, my adopted country. So I think God is already probably leading me in that way, a bit not just exclusive focus on medicine itself. Mm-hmm.
you just mentioned that you have some charities that are set up. And uh, first of all, explain the couple charities that you have and then how people can help you out with that. We have principally two charities. One is One Foundation for Sar Restoration. The website is www.onefoundation.com. And we are principally looking for two things right now. One is placentas, and we need lots of placentas to help blind patients. So any young lady who is going to give birth to a child who will not mind donating the placenta, they can visit our WAN Foundation, WANFoundation.com. Let us know and make the arrangement. It doesn't affect the mother. Okay, mother so just you make it easy. Yeah, mother just signed the form and she delivered the baby exactly the same. But she will have the satisfaction to know after she delivered the baby, the bloody placenta, instead of being discarded, which is what's been done, is being saved up by our foundation volunteers and uh, we bioengineered into placenta contact lens to put on older injured eyes to help heal. One placenta can be made into 100 little amniotic contact lenses, therefore have the ability to help 100 older adults. And we're looking for more host families. Our foundation's focus at this time is blind orphan children. It's hard to imagine more deserving human beings than blind orphan children. So yeah. these are uh, orphans that would come from other countries. Yes, yes. And they would stay with a family for yes. a little while. Yes, so, so we're looking for host families uh. because foundation provide medical care free of charge and all that, but the kids need to stay with someone that who will take the responsibility about because not always surgery is successful. So that's one foundation for site restoration. Uh, website is www.wanefoundation.com. Second site uh, the, uh, the non-profit that I founded is one foundation for Christian outreach to China. And uh, because I, China, a country I escaped as a teenager during Cultural Revolution, I found myself going back more. Because I want to help China, my mother country, to reduce, improve itself by reducing corruption. With the increase in material wealth and temptation, with the lax moral structure, people used to believe in communism, but nobody believed in that anymore, but they need to believe in something. So it's a spiritual vacuum. And I believe this is an unprecedented opportunity to bring the teaching of Jesus Christ to 1.4 billion people. 95% of them are not Christians. So this is, we have a China Bible project. We bring the Bible, uh, printed by Lifeway, half Chinese, half English, and then get the email address from the recipient. Then we disperse those email addresses to Christian brothers and sisters here. So as each person, if you want to, one-on-one, -on -one, pen pal with a budding Christian over there in China who received one of our Bibles, you know, nurturing, fellowship, supporting. Because that person over there is not supported by an environment where 95% of people are not Christians. I do believe this project has the potential for recruits for God's kingdom, quarter of human race, and also will help, I truly believe, will help China curtail its biggest problem, which is the corruption. And some people say more police, more legal system. Yes, I agree, that will help. But without faith, one can never hire enough policemen. Mm -hmm. And could turn an enemy into a friend. I guess China's our frenemy at this point. Yes, yeah. And if they are softened. Yes. Yeah. Again, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Wang, visit drbingwang.com. www.drmingwang.com. Com, or www.wangfoundation.org. Also, the music you heard was that of Dr. Ming Wang's Arhu and Carlos E. Gonzalez's classical guitar. Xinzai, Ming Wang, Boshir de Xiaoxi. This, uh, dear friends, this Chinese friends, I call Wang Mingxu. 
我是一九八二年从中国来美国的，我是原来在中国科技大学毕业，在文化大革命受过很多苦，七一九七七级啊，文化大革命以后第一级，然后一九八二年来美国呢，在这读博士学位激光物理，然后再读医学院，在哈佛和麻省理工学院，然后呢，现在是在美国行医做眼科医生，做那个白内障手术和激光眼近视手术。但是我今天这个 interview 跟 team 主要是想的就是几点。第一点呢，我认为，呃，就说这个科学和信仰应该能够共同，应应该起，他们是朋友而不是敌人。也就是说，我们的社会现在随着科学飞速发展，我们遇到很多问题，就是怎么，呃，当这个科学和我们的这个呃信仰有起的矛盾的时候，怎么去处理？比如说干细胞，比如说。婴儿细胞这些，呃，科研怎么处理？我坚信呢，上帝是爱我们，他希望我们改变我们生活。我们生活是通过科研来改变的，所以呢，我坚信呢，就是这个科学和信仰应该能够共存，能够共呃，不光是共存，它这个一加一超过二，能够使得呃科学和信仰都能够相互提高。我在这个方面，我一直希望就是能够研究这个婴儿怎么愈合。但这就是眼睛的创伤，他不想去碰，影响婴儿这个生命。我这工作二十年了，也在我最近，呃，发表的这个我的传记《从黑暗到光明》这个里面谈到。所以呢，我工作二十年以后发现呢，有一个这个这个呃，就是胎盘，就是小孩生了以后胎盘呢，一般都是丢掉的。我把胎盘收回到实验室呢，把做成胎盘的无形眼镜，然后放到。有创伤的年纪大的病人里面，我就发现他们眼睛就像一个小孩的这个眼睛可以愈合，所以这个呃我们也有美国专利啊，有这个成果现在已经在美国广泛运用，就是胎盘无形眼睛。所以这个例子说明呢，就是说这样的机会是存在的，能够发展科学，但同时我们继续能够保护我们的这个这个呃就是。道德以及信仰的原则，所以呢，我认为科学和信仰是能够共存、能够存在，呃，是朋友而不是敌人。这是今天讲的第一点。第二点呢，我也谈到，就是说啊，呃，就是呃，作为我一个中国人来到美国呢，我认为我学到在两个国家、两个文化都学到不同的东西，但是呢，我很幸运能够把它结合起来，从中国，呃，我的祖国。以及我的这个呃这个基因所来源，我学到了家庭观念、刻苦精神，以及呢对世界的看法不应该是黑或白，而是有一种平衡的看法，愿意能够讨论一些复杂的问题，呃，就是能够考虑各方面的因素，这些是我的中国的呃这文化根底给我带来的，就是家庭观念、刻苦精神。以及愿意平衡的去考虑一些复杂的问题，但西方呢，在美国呢，也给我带来了很多东西，我也学到很多东西。就是说，比较这个看问题呢，比较正面的，比较开开阔眼界，而且比较敢想敢干。呃，而且在西方，我也接触到基督教，也从生活中正搞到正更多的生活的目的存在。所以呢，我认为。嗯，这个就像世界也是中美合作的世界，将来中美如果合作起来，那世界就会更光明。对我们每一个人来说呢，也是我们能够结合我们在东方的传统
优良的传统和精髓，再加上西方最好的东西，它的这个感想、感干和呃这个这个这个正能量，所以呢，使得我们每个人生活也会进一步提高。这也是我呃所这个。感到呃，讲呃，感到的。最后呢，我讲我们有两个基金会，一个是视力复明基金会，我们在找那个胎盘，如果哪一个呃母亲想生小孩，想可以捐献胎盘的话，因为胎盘是呃丢掉的，我们现在有技术可以把做成胎盘无形眼镜，帮助年纪大的眼睛愈合。呃，我们这个基金会我们是免费的。第二个呢，我们有一个这个基金会呢，就带这个圣经到中国。那我认为中国现在最大的问题就是腐败，腐败就是因为人们做事情吧没有这个道德的这个这个约束约束，很多人认为呃那多一些警察就行了，多一些法律系统。我是认为，如果你没有信仰，没有基督，你永远不可能雇足够多的警察。也就是说，这个社会可以往前走，在更好的。法律系统之上，还要从根本的，因为法律是给我们带来外因，我们要通过自己内因来真正的影响我们自己的生活以及我们旁边人的生活。所以呢，我认为内因就在于信仰，就是基督这个信念，使得我们每个人可能从内部最根本的改变、改进自己，使得成为我们在这个世界上生活下来能够。做更有益的事情，能够感到基督在我们一边，能够做一个在一个中美东方世界这么一个大形式的世界，今天能够站出来，啊，能够骄傲的这个这个选取两种文化的最优良之处而发扬光大，真正成为一个世界公民。呃，我是王明旭啊，是美国呃田纳西州纳西维尔城市的，我是这边的眼科医生。今天很高兴有跟大家有机会谈。如果有任何人想跟我联系的话，我们那个基金会的地址是 www.onefoundation.com。谢谢。好的。In the corner, back by the woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy@hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Spun Counter Guy, and if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile, go to SpunCounterGuy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes Store, and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Bro